0: Now, as you may know, insurance is broadly split into two areas. On the one hand, there is property and casualty, known as PNC, and casualty refers to quite a wide-ranging set of coverage, of which one of the largest is liabilities, by the way. Uh, on the other hand, we have life and health, and we've done quite a bit with life and health insurers and the companies bringing new technologies into that space over the last few years, and we're delighted to have Gen Re as one of our corporate members. And this is a rare chance to hear directly from one of the senior executives of a major insurance company about how they think about innovation, what they're doing with their partners, and what the top themes are that they're interested in this space. Lots of great information in this one. And if it's your first time to the podcast, well, I'm Matthew Grant, one of the two partners at Interstate London, and delighted to have you joining us. And of course, if you're one of our old friends taking us along with you, whatever you are up to today, well... Thanks for inviting us back. It's people like you that make this worthwhile. Now, over to Andres. Andres, delighted to have you joining me. I know you've got a huge amount going on and looking forward to hearing some of that over the next 30 minutes or so. Now, you've been at Genry for 27 years. You've worked around the world, looks like, includes South Africa, Singapore, Australia, Australia. Uh, you're now back in Cologne in head office, and you've had a diverse set of roles as well as product manager, research and development, general manager. But today, you are the global chief underwriting officer for life and health for Genry, but you've also got responsibilities for the company's research and development. So so welcome. Really intrigued to learn more about what you're doing.
1: Thank you, Matthew. Nice to be at InsurTech.
0: Now, it's always really interesting to know how people ended up in insurance. It looks like you've had your whole career in insurance. Was this something that you always wanted to go into? Not at all.
1: Um, I studied mathematics and I thought, well, maybe i join a bank. We go back to the 1980s, of course, and the banks were looking for IT people, but uh, I didn't want to have an IT job, so... I went to where well, most mathematicians went to to an insurance company, a life insurer in that case. Um, so, Allianz Life in Stuttgart—that's where it started. Yes, and all my life in life insurance.
0: Excellent. Well, yes, yeah, certainly everybody these days is very focused on getting more people able to handle data. So, it looked like you made the right choice early. Now, a little bit about Genries. So, for those that don't know the company, you're part of the Berkshire Hathaway Group. I believe you've got over three thousand employees, offices in. 40 companies and I believe your role in addition to chief underwriting officer it also includes January's business school your tech operations underwriting research and the rules engine uh, so there's a lot lot going on there in, in terms of just to make sure we're clear on the scope of the role on the research and development side is that only in the life and health or do you also get involved with the broader PNC side of the business?
1: Yeah, first of all, um, actually, the, the role also includes product development and analytics, um, just to add that. Um, and the focus, yes, is clearly life and health, um, the section global underwriting and R&D is embedded in our life and health franchise. Um, that said, we do not want to work in isolation and uh, not with PNC, which is obviously also a significant uh, franchise within Genree. Um, And through our business school, we already offer some training and education across life and health and PNC. Um, We also want to share analytics resources um, with our PNC colleagues. Um, They have analytics people, we have them. So we want to best work in larger teams and achieve goals faster um, rather than splitting teams too thinly and, and not learning from each other. So yeah. COVID-19 is also a perfect example. Um, it's, it's sort of uh, has a medical background um, and you would have thought at the beginning it hits life and health more than PNC but uh, the other way is round and, and so we do communicate with our PNC colleagues quite uh, frequently.
0: Okay well it's good to know that collaboration happens within companies as well as you know we're talking about it at side companies but uh, yeah sometimes life and health and PNC seem to operate in, in different worlds and just in terms of your role uh, how do you sort of balance like what I guess is today 's job of underwriting with looking forward into the, what the, f- the future opportunities are i mean is there a specific way you think about how you allocate your time or your team 's time between those two different activities?
1: Well, we have a lot of topics at our hands which we um, constantly need to to update I mean if you think about underwriting research is a is a very typical example where um, We develop our underwriting manual on a consistent and constant basis. Um, We constantly get new information. Again, think about COVID, you're inundated with uh, new information which you have to digest. Um, You don't want to react to everything you read, uh, but if something is manifesting itself, um, then you have to adapt your underwriting approach um, to, to that research outcome. Um, And and yes, we have our own differentiator uh, projects where we believe in, um, makes a difference to us. Um, And so we are looking constantly for for these opportunities and support our colleagues, um, which are out in the market, talking to our clients. That's the role of R&D to support our business units, um, achieving better results and uh, better service to their clients.
0: Good. Well, I, I want to come back and just talk about the, the clients in a moment. But just first of all, you mentioned COVID there. Clearly, that has a major impact, as you said, on, on both sides of insurance in the life and health and the property and casualty from a COVID perspective. And then secondly, more generally, what themes are are most interesting to you and your colleagues just now? Okay,
1: let's start um, with the more general uh, topics, because um, we are there, obviously, not only at COVID times. Um, So being an actuary myself uh, and and also uh, product development and pricing is part of our um, task within that section R&D. Um, Defining risk categories and supporting evidence-based underwriting um, is essential for us. And for that, we need data and we want to innovate. Uh, We want to do things better, differently, uh, to to differentiate ourselves. I'm mindful um, that data should not be used purely from a company perspective. So I'm very mindful of the fact that we need to analyze data effectively for um, something which benefits our end customer. Uh, We should not be exploring what is possible, but what makes sense and what is needed for what serves the society and our end customers. So I'm very passionate about this and fairness and equity are our guiding principles in in that work. Um, You might think we are dreaming a little bit, but uh, I think within R&D, that is something um, we can put on our flag and and run with it. Ultimately, it should lead to better product offerings and, and greater choice for consumers. And innovation and data can make a difference to current processes, whether it's sales, underwriting or claims. We want as many people as possible to have insurance cover. But if someone is interested, um, we send them through a process that has not changed over many years. Think about an underwriting process. Um, there are... Many attempts out there um, that want to simplify the process, um, but we're fundamentally still doing the same as what we have done 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago. Why? Many simply can't imagine to part from traditional information they used. Um, So do we need to draw blood or collect urine to determine the risk class of an individual? Um, Yes, we know how to do this best, uh, but we probably can do it differently and we want to. See and look for alternatives of that to make a more seamless and smooth process for clients and customers. If I can then talk to COVID, um, unfortunately, it needed a pandemic um, to make us think harder and to force us uh, in offering alternatives um, because. Certainly in some markets um, where a lot of medicals are requested, some were not able to provide these medicals because of lockdown rules. And so insurance companies had to adapt to these differences, um, but they were forced to it. And then you can go through the usual processes and find uh, better ways of doing this. And I hope that um, going forward, these thought processes continue to develop and we do achieve a better process for the customers.
0: That last point is, is really interesting. So, you know, clearly, there's, there's a direct health impact of COVID, but it's actually that ch- forcing the change of process, as you said, that actually people now have to do things remotely that is changing the way the processes work before. And also, to your earlier point, it, it's about speed with which the customer can engage with you and and make choices so it's really interesting sort of those external factors can drive change Uh, but but one question andre is just you talk about customers and you're a a reinsurance organization so presumably your point of contact is mostly with insurers so how do you engage or how do you think of the customer when you're acting as a reinsurer rather than an insurer or a broker with your more direct relationships to your consumers you're right
1: we mostly engage with primary insurers and the end customer is, is pretty far away from a, for a reinsurer. Imagine there is a primary insurer, then there is usually a, a broker for the individual or the agent for the individual um, in between the insurer and the end customer. So we seem to be far removed from it. Uh, on the other hand, um, we do get feedback on a regular basis um, because uh, certain terms are done and provided by the reinsurer, we might have given an individual assessment of the case before we accept that risk. So we are receiving feedback and it's important to us that the insurers are selling good insurance. That means that the applicant knows what needs to be provided, what needs to be answered, um, and um, that we do not have to look at non-disclosure when it comes to a claim. So the smoother that process is and the the better the end customer understands what product is being bought, the more we believe we have a better outcome for everyone in the web value chain. That includes the reinsurer very much as well.
0: Interesting. So, so your end customers, presumably, they think the provider of their insurance is their insurance company or their broker. In some cases, if they don't necessarily understand how insurance works. But ultimately, you're the, you are there you're creating a better outcome for them, but almost seamless in the background. And if it works for you, it works for them and vice versa. It's a sort of interesting change from how many organizations might think about their customer relationships.
1: Very much so. We, we don't want to be at the forefront. Um, that's the job of the agent or the primary insurer. But we are supporting them. We are providing them capacity. And we are providing ideas all the time on products, products, um, on um, how best to structure them uh, to make it also clear that we are saying we are not covering cancer. We are only covering advanced cancer. Um, If that's what we are doing, we want to make um, absolutely sure um, that the products our clients are selling to their clients um, will have uh, no problems um, later on. So it is in our own interest um, to guide our customers in the best possible way.
0: And then more broadly, there's a focus now across insurance and reinsurance about finding ways to help customers of all kinds reduce the risk, their own risk prevention, risk management, protection. Is that something that you also think about a generally in, in terms of supporting your, whether they're insurance or the end customer and helping reduce the loss potential or the claims potential? Yes, I think
1: the times are over where a life insurance company could simply say, we are offering you financial protection in case um, your loved one is dying or is a major uh, disease or is disabled. We want to appear as as a partner um, to the customer, And that means we want to prevent um, a loss or we want to prevent a claim, not because we don't want to pay, but because a happier and healthier life is something our clients need. And ultimately we should sell something um, the clients and the customers uh, need. And that will be, yes, financial protection in the classical sense, but also support um, to have a happier and healthier life. So... If we can offer more than just um, the promise to be there um, in a situation of human loss, um, that we uh, can also help them throughout their lives, um, that would be something uh, which is desired. And I think it sells better than just the financial promise um, to be there in 20, 30, 40 years' time.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's a whole shift of how insurance is positioning itself and creates a stronger connection with the clients. So sort of on that topic, I mean, there are lots of different organizations now offering support to people. You know, things like the Apple Watch is one of the, probably the more well-known ones about tracking steps and things. How do you, you find and work with technology partners who you see that could support you or your, your end client in managing their own risk or reducing their risk?
1: Well, our strategy is straightforward. Um, Quite frankly, um, so many insured tech companies out there that the insurers may may lose the oversight of what's all available and what can be all done. And uh, we take uh, on the part of the job for our clients in vetting the offerings. Uh, we talk to tech companies. We want to understand their core offering and assess whether we see potential. Um, you mentioned the Apple Watch, uh, and it does track a lot of information, which pieces of information are, are really relevant which ones could we use and and bring into a, an offering which fits with an insurance company now we do not buy them we don't buy insure tech companies as you said at the beginning we are part of other Hathaway I think they have very many competent people in investing so we we don't do this but we do two things we support the insure techs we believe in by mentoring them I mean looking at what insurance companies really need and looking for. And secondly, introduce them to our clients. We have a global reach and we understand the differences in the various markets. Um, Not everything in one market works in other markets. We can help the companies to better understand the potential of the mostly technology-centric offering on how it needs to be adapted for an insurance environment. So that's, that's our investment, not so much in cash, but in advice and mentoring and in vetting uh, these things.
0: And companies range in their abilities to be able to work with short or other early stage companies. I mean, what, what would be the earliest you would typically engage with an organization where you feel you're going to get value out of them and, and you're not going to have to invest too much time it's got a long return for you are you working with very early stage companies or do you prefer ones that are a bit more established no we're
1: very happy working with early stage companies um the i think the problem if i may say so is that um, all these companies um have a have a very different time scale turnaround idea of of what is success and um and the insurance industry, but particularly the life insurance industry, is, is working uh, in a very slow pace. And that different expectation of time is uh, the crucial part. So we are very happy working with early ideas because then we potentially can influence them as well. Um, as long as these companies have an understanding that um, their ideas may not well be placed within three or six months' time, that, that might be very unrealistic.
0: And you, you, we sort of mentioned the Apple Watch earlier on and, and wearables. Well, what examples are you seeing that are really having an impact in terms of changing the, the risk or influencing behavior that are, are technology based?
1: The population or the societies are seemingly obsessed with tracking almost everything. Uh, You want to know exactly how far the pizza man is is away from your door, um, just as much as you want to know how many seconds you run your last 10 kilometers faster than the last time. Um, So there seems to be a certain obsession um, with tracking everything. Insurers will find that uh, information and the data interesting. It's it's like a treasure trove if you get that information and uh, maybe more the actuaries and data scientists than insurance companies. But um, there is a lot of information in it which we could make and bring to good use for an insurance customers. I don't want to talk about problems all the time, but um, that's something we need to to look into. What is the survival time of um, a particular tracking um, element. I mean, do people um, track their information for an awful long time? I mean, We're s- signing policies for a period of 20, 30, 40 years. Um, can we really expect the person to track that kind of information for such a long time? Um, also, if the offering is uh, too narrow, meaning we just track certain information give you one score then it will not be an offering um, which is of interest to a large group of customers Um, if you ask your friends um, your people around you what they are tracking and whether they believe in it you will get many different answers so we can't assume that what we think is is good um, and makes good sense for an individual is adopted and embraced by each and every customer so we need to have a offering where maybe certain elements are embedded uh, but it's, the, it's, it's about the entire offering which has to make sense for a large uh, target group and that's probably why vitality seems to work reasonably well and the one or the other offering which is too narrow may not work well.
0: Yes I, mean, I, I think what's happening in not just in life and health but I think this is a case in Mosher as well is insurance companies are are recognizing where there is sort of value of indicators that you can sort of break down your clients into different categories of their attitude to risk or health or fast driving if it's cars. But as you said, it gets very difficult if you tried to define an insurance policy for 20 years on the basis of how many steps somebody had worked. And uh, in my own experience of tracking things, it's great tracking when it works well, But if I find I'm not doing the steps I thought I wanted to do, then I kind of get less interested in it. So you sort of get, I think you get those clusters of time and people where (laughs) there's there's enthusiasm and then there's lack of enthusiasm. That doesn't necessarily mean that the healthy lifestyle is changing. I guess you've got to sort of factor that in and not not put people off if they've just gone off it. You you
1: Uh, have these devices which can um, create or calculate a biological age or fitness age and... Well, if that age is is an age which um, um, is, is a nice one from your perspective, then you will like it. And if you are disappointed with that outcome, you might be um, not only disappointed with that age, but you're disappointed with that company. So you need to be very careful what um, the message is um, to the end customers and, and how you want to use it. So that's why often it works uh, pretty well Uh, with a group of already substandard risks or diseased people who understand better that they need to be disciplined uh, uh, or they need to be disciplined in their lifestyle choices and you can nudge them into the right direction, help them because they understand why you are doing it and why they should do this, that might be a better proposition than nudging everyone to become suddenly a healthy nation.
0: Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And I, I suspect that the benefits are, are greater as well as the more significant benefit you can measure if somebody's already got a pre-existing condition and, and that probably they're already used to tracking things as well. And I also your point about, yeah, if you give somebody bad news <laughs> about their age yeah. or their biological age, then as you said, they may decide that that's not the right insurance company for them. It's human nature being what it is. You've touched on this a bit, but the way life insurance is offered, I mean, I bought my life insurance policy about 27 years ago, and I think I've moved a few times, um, but I, I haven't heard from my insurer in 27 years. And somebody explained to me that one of the reasons that they believed that life insurers were so reluctant to contact their clients was that they re- were reminded how much they were spending on life insurance, they'd cancel the policy. I'm sure it's not quite as as bad as that. But I mean, what kind of things are you seeing around life insurance where I mean, presumably there is a big opportunity there for people that are spending money on life insurance to engage with them more directly or offer them better value or cross-sell to them.
1: Absolutely. Um, but the the fear you had just mentioned, it's it's a very realistic one. Um, I even heard of one life insurer also from the UK I'm contacting policyholders to tell them we're well, the a rate reduction and their lapse rate went up. Um, so particularly on the last part, um, companies thought they are very clever and contacting certain um, people or, or individuals. Um, and then it actually had the, um, the wrong impact. than they hoped, um, yes, there is a real risk in contacting someone and then the policies slaps. But why is this? So this is because um, there must be an element of surprise um, on the policyholder side, as you say. If you bought your policy 27 years ago and you have never had any contact with the insurer, what kind of relationship is that? It's not a good relationship. And and that might have worked um, there and then, uh, but I don't think it will work going forward. So that's why insurers, besides of having happy and healthier people, um, need to make sure that they engage with their customers um, or the broker, an agent, who is often involved in this um, should be involved in talking to the customer more directly. But it's also the broker and agent um, who is breaking that link. Um, even if you bought a policy from a broker, you may not actually remember after a few years' time um, the company you bought it from, but you remember your broker. Because that's the relationship you build up. So. Yeah. It's not easy for an insurance company to um, go over an agent or broker and start a relationship with the end customer. That's obviously much easier for direct marketing. But also choice is important. These days we have choices. Um, Some prefer to communicate via an app. Some prefer the trusted agent, continue to trust that agent individual. And others want to have the old-fashioned letter. Um, But the insurer has to provide that choice and has to start making more contact. Maybe not with you who bought the policy 27 years ago, but certainly with the people who are buying now policies and you have to keep that up, that regular contact, offer something. And then I think the loyalty will increase.
0: I can see that's particularly an issue these days where you have, yeah, a customer base that's actually more engaged, sort of used to look shopping around. Um, but I guess also what you're saying is it puts more onus back on the broker as well, doesn't it, to collaborate with your, like yourselves, and others. And just to sort of building on that you mentioned earlier on about the opportunities around the world and you know, when you look out at Asia again somebody made a very interesting point yesterday when they were talking about looking at Asia versus either of the Europe or the US which is if you're going to change how you do business it's about either disruption or competition in in those parts of the world but Asia is they don't they either don't have the insurance or the the consumers haven't got it. It's a very different market to go and try out new things. I mean, are you seeing that as an area where you can go out and test out new products and and actually be able to grow and sort of test things fairly quickly?
1: I wouldn't like to say so much testing it, um, but certainly you can gain uh, quickly experience and um, adjust accordingly. Yes, I mean Asia, most parts of Asia um, is, is a vast, fast growing market. Um, so you you have uh, an untapped market there, and that provides you the opportunities um, um, in trying things in, in the one or the other country and learning the lessons there and fine-tuning these things then. Um, consumer expectations in Asia are also somewhat different, um, and so is the acceptance um, to receive for example, offers via social media and buying insurance this way. And then together with a large um, population, um, it is a very different number game than, than in an established market in Europe or the US. Um, an insurance purchase via an app can also not be a $1,000 question, uh, but more like buying a equivalent to of a dinner in a good restaurant. That's what it is usually in, in China. And if you then offer um say, health insurance um, for a low premium together with a tool that manages a doctor's appointment, which you otherwise may not get, um, then you definitely meet the need of many people in China and it will be easy to sell such an insurance offer. So there's definitely quite a lot to learn from Asia, from their successes, but also from their failures, which undoubtedly they also have. But you're mistaken to simply transfer an Asian approach to a European market, Um, as you said, it's it's very different. And um, you face, in in Europe, a very different regulator, very different consumer groups. Um, So you have to take that into account. But not everything is gold in Asia. SingLife, for example, a Singapore life insurance company was founded a a few years back in Singapore market selling life insurance, mostly through agents. That's sort of the tradition in in Singapore. And SingLife introduced a lot of smart technology, making insurance and financial services digital and mobile, exactly how we would like to see it as well, a bit more dynamic, um, modern. But interestingly, it was um, only recently announced that SingLife bought Aviva Singapore, um, a very established traditional insurer and I don't want to overinterpret this, but it might tell us that um, we're still sort of searching for the best way forward and, and perhaps blending the traditional approach with what technology can really offer may well be the best way forward. Um, so it's not the one or the other, um, but it is the blending of the two which should have most success in the near future.
0: Yeah, the blending, I suspect I there's also a distribution and brand sure. element, isn't there? I mean, if you see that on the property and casualty side where... You know, some of the new class of well-funded insurtechs are you know, spending hundreds of millions of dollars on just on marketing. I suspect that's that's a challenge, and particularly in particular, I mean, Asia as well. Is that maybe also also part of it? But as you say, I, mean, I think that's true of so much of technology. Though, is, is there's a sort of new world, and then the old world need to combine, as opposed to it's is one or the other. Uh, and and then you you mentioned regulation in there. I mean, what what is what are the limitations, and sort of how do you overcome them with things like gdpr in in europe and you know the sort of the the equivalent regulations coming out elsewhere in the world does does that limit what you can do from a innovation point of view or are you able to find ways to still still remain innovative and protect the consumer's data rights
1: to to some degree um, regulation and it's always easy obviously to blame someone else but um, regulators are not always going with the times fast enough um, in particular if you think about the sales process and um, it's it's not necessarily always our choice um, to make it that cumbersome uh, in terms of uh, providing all the details um, long product disclosure statements which eventually uh, very few people will only read it's not necessarily our choice it would be nicer if it is can be done differently and data protection is obviously uh, something which is a, is a street full of banana skins. Um, you can, can only do the wrong thing almost. But it's a very important topic. It, it's not something we can ignore. We need to embrace it. We need to um, accept it. Um, there is a lot of trust involved. We are receiving a lot of information. And consumers t- uh, should have the expectation that we deal with the data very carefully. I believe that... Our data scientists and analytics um, people can do with the data a lot of analysis. Um, They need to be disciplined. The actuary doesn't need to be able to identify the individual and he doesn't want to know the individual. That's not what he's interested in. On the other hand, it's the underwriter and claims manager who needs to be able to identify, of course, the individual because... The regulator would tell us also that we ought to know everything about the individual if there was a contact with a company. Um, so, and it's, it's more about um, getting our systems and processes up to speed um, that creates our headaches. Um, we all want to have data lakes, we all want to have access to the data, but we need to manage the access in, in a clever and smart way and um, again and tell our customers what we are doing with their data um, and um, we don't want to surprise anyone by approaching an individual and saying uh, we just noticed yet your heart rate gone up um, something seems to be wrong um, that is that is something we shouldn't do um, so we need to make sure we um discuss or we, we um, educate our customer with um, what we are collecting how we want to use it um, for their benefit of course
0: yeah as you said lots of uh, lots of banana skins on Absolutely. the road although although i mean one thing that's intrigued me maybe you're doing something in this area so if you get individuals who are willing to share data and, and maybe that was partly what is happening where you've got people with pre-existing conditions do you do you see a category of people who are more willing to share, or willing to share data that wouldn't necessarily be just okay from a GDPR perspective? But you know, they'll say, like, well, I'll share my data on the basis that I feel I've got, you know, i I want to have full disclosure and benefit from that." Do you see a category of people that you know? It's not everybody, but some people who want to get the benefit of of what they're doing.
1: Definitely, we all want to see by giving something, uh, handing over some data. And we want to know what we get for that and whether it's a discount or whether it's um, anything else. I think the majority of people is quite willing um, to trade data also with an insurer. Um, but that doesn't stop the consumer groups and uh, others to raise a big a major concerns. And then people are questioning what the insurer might all do in the end with that data. I think there's always a suspicion that insurers will use the data um, to benefit only the company and not the individual. Uh, We need to demonstrate that it is for the individual. Um, I always like to talk about the introduction of uh, non-smoker discounts. Um, That's, I mean, it was obviously based on very limited, on very simple data, but the data showed us non-smokers have a lower mortality, and we should give them a discount um, and smokers have to pay more and that has been absolutely accepted by the society and, and we have to achieve uh, something similar for anything new we want to introduce in that space uh, as well. If, if there is a discount to be given, it has to make sense to the individuals.
0: Yeah, interesting. It's also maybe where well there's a choice. So if people choose to smoke or not, they might be more willing to accept that where if it's as part of their own existing genetic makeup, then maybe it's a little bit more difficult, but that's a whole different topic in itself, but I just yes. want to come back come back to yeah the the covid nineteen discussion and then pandemics generally because the way I think about it there, there there are two different areas here for insurance: one is how to help people with the existing well you know, defined issue of COVID-19 and then as more generally what happens for pandemics going into the future. So you, you talked a bit about some of the changes to the processes by which people maybe get medical uh, or medicals but what else are you seeing that actually more directly related to your know, losses occurring due to either directly COVID illness or some secondary impact of the illness? Well
1: we definitely see this in all our results and I'm um pretty sure uh, all the other insurers and insurers see this in their results, whether PNC and or life, Um, but also in life, we're seeing higher mortality rates. Um, Again, we can see it differently in different countries, just like the Corona pandemic um, shapes up very differently uh, by country. It depends also on your age profile. Um, So we do see uh, increased mortality. Um, We see, less health insurance um, spending, Um, again, for the obvious reason that uh, certain hospitals were not frequented um, to the same extent, Uh, there might be a catch up coming later on. Um, So there's uh, there's pluses and minus, but uh, overall, um, obviously a negative impact to the insurance industry. Uh, But that's what we are there for. Um, I think that's that's, uh, acceptable. What um, um, was probably more important because it impacted more people is when they suddenly lost their job um, and not wanting to lose cover that um, premium rebates were offered um, to those who couldn't afford them but needed the cover going forward. Um, So I think there the insurance industry was very proactive in providing solutions to large groups of people who had suddenly financial problems in uh, continuing their insurance policies.
0: Yeah, there's no, it's difficult times. Just a couple of questions before we wrap up. I suppose the first one is, so any organization that wants to know more about what Genry is looking for or how to work with you, what's the best way to make contact with your colleagues or your organization? Well, we have as you
1: said at the beginning um, offices in in many countries, um, so we have local people which we always prefer um, are the first point of um, access simply because um, they know the local market um, best. Um, we are a central unit which we are very happy to um, to be approached as well. We would always work with our local people um, for a bespoke solution um, that's always important to us. Um, so Ross Campbell, of course, in our London office is the person who would speak to most of our insured tech companies um, and to yourself, Matthew. So he's a he's our person to go to if an insured tech company wants to find out whether. Um, there is an offering they find interesting for the insurance industry and wants to test um, with us the market whether that is really a feasible and a viable
0: solution. Good. Well, yeah, we know Ross well. And, and thank you for your support and thanks for Ross as well. We'll put his contact details in the episode notes so anybody can track yes, him yeah. down. And then finally, Andrew, there's a question that I, I'm always interested by anyone that's got a, a, as a role that's got the scope and responsibility that you have How on earth do you find the time to keep up to date with what is happening in the world as well as doing your day job? What techniques and tips can you offer for that?
1: Well, I obviously have an advantage in the sense that I have a a large team uh, working uh, in global underwriting and R&D. And uh, to that matter, it's a very diverse team. I find that enormously important uh, to talk to different people with different backgrounds, um, addressing different topics. To me, I uh, find that very uh, enriching, talking to the different people. Um, We are pushed by our colleagues, if I may say so, because they bring requests from various corners and countries um, which we uh, need to address, and that always... uh, Results in a mini research t- topic, um, which um, helps us to make sure we are up to date. I have been in many different countries, as you said at the beginning. So having a good network of people um, you can tap into and talk to um, is the holy grain in keeping up to date with things that is of importance to us.
0: Yeah, well, so often that's what people say. I mean, there's, there's a lot we can sort of consume online, but ultimately, as you we're know, learning in these harder times, it's uh, it's the people you know you can rely on to get the information, which is why these kind of discussions are so useful. Um, well, that was, that was fascinating. I learned an awful lot there. Is there anything before we do wrap up that we haven't talked about that you'd like to mention related to what you're doing? Oh,
1: well, Matthew, no, thank you very much for um, for that invite. I really enjoyed talking to you. Um on our website uh, at genry.com, um, there is a knowledge base where we uh, share a lot of information. Um, we are very happy sharing information and our research. Um, we don't think it's um, something we should keep for ourselves. Uh, the more we share with the industry, the better, we believe. And um, so you will find a lot more information in there.
0: Tremendous. Well, Andres, thank you very much. Really enjoyed talking to you and look forward to seeing you face to face at some point in the future, somewhere in the world. Looking forward to traveling again. (laughs) Good. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Great. Thanks a lot, Matthew. Well, lots to take on board there. But if you haven't already found out, we're giving you a summary of these discussions on our website, www dot instec dot london look in the podcast section usually turn up a few days after we go live so useful if you want a reminder of what you've just heard or to share that with anybody else also a reminder that if you are collecting cpd points for professional development we are chartered institute approved so don't forget to log your listening or ask us for a record and finally if you'd like to be part of our podcast learn more about what it takes to be a corporate member or fancy joining robin and i live for an event then please do get in touch. Drop me an email, matthew at instec.london or connect via LinkedIn. Thank you.